Well, Charles Simeon was a British pastor who's widely seen as one of the greatest expository preachers in history. When he was appointed pastor of a church in Cambridge, England in 1783, he was excited, but he soon found that the people in the church were not as excited as he was. Simeon was focused on the spread of the gospel through preaching and through evangelism, but some in the church did not share his convictions. Back then, the churches didn't have pews or chairs like churches today do. Instead, they had boxes. And the boxes were reserved for family members. And so to show their displeasure with Charles Simeon and his preaching, some families came into church, locked their boxes, and left, forcing those who wanted to come hear Simeon preach to either sit on the floor or stand on the sides. In other words, people were forsaking this assembly of the saints and causing others harm. Of these dark times, Simeon wrote this, In this state of things I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the isles, almost forsaken. But I thought if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. Eventually, the opposition to Charles Simeon died down, and his influence spread throughout England and through the rest of the world. To this day, pastors are influenced by the preaching of Charles Simeon. He learned that the opposition, no matter how strong, does not matter that we are doing things wrong. And in fact, what we've seen throughout the Bible and church history is that when opposition comes, it often means that you're doing the right thing. Simeon was faced with something all pastors and all church leaders face. Would he give in to the opposition because it was the easy thing to do, or would he stand his ground because it was the right thing to do? See, this passage that we read this morning is a reminder of how serious ministry is. It shows us that ministry is life and death, and those who take it seriously, not for the praise of man, but instead for the glory of God, those are ministers who leave their mark on history, whether or not the record books state their name. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you know that there are things that I do that are just part of who I am. You know when I get excited, I talk louder and faster. You know that I wave my hands around during the sermon. You know that sometimes I'll give a couple shrugs during the sermon. I'll put my hands in my pockets. All of these things that, that make me who I am come out when I'm preaching. And sometimes you can probably anticipate what I'm about to say before I even say it. And one of the things that I do say that sticks out, I'm sure, is that get your theology right now. Because when times get rough, that's not the time to learn. It's the time to rely and so I, I think that, that, that another thing that I say is that, get, uh, uh, that the pastor preaches to himself six days out of the week so that when someone stands behind the pulpit, you know that it's been working on the pastor's heart the whole week. So there are some passages that resonate with me more than others. There are some things that I find in Scripture that, that I connect with better, that speak directly to an issue that I'm dealing with or a sin that I'm struggling with. And then I come to a passage like this. 
and I feel inadequate for the task of being a pastor. The truth is, the whole book has made me feel inadequate. I, I, I can't be what this is telling me to be or what I want to be. I struggle so much with it. This is a serious task that God gives to his shepherds. I don't take these words lightly. God's calling on a man to preach should always be done with seriousness. The Bible says that I must give an account for each person under my care. This is frightening to me. I'm scared of this. I can barely watch over myself, and now I've got to stand before the king of all creation, the one who holds the universe in his hands, and I've got to give an account for you. Why would anyone do this? It's a good question. We do this because we can't do anything else. Not that we don't have skills that will translate to something else, but we do this because we know that if we don't, we are running away from God's call. To preach the word. To be ready in season and out. So God doesn't call pastors to the ministry without guidance. He clearly shows us what you, the church, must expect from your pastors. These five or six verses that we read speak to the church about what a faithful minister really is. I got a task for you to do later. Ask your friends what they expect or what a good pastor should be. Visionary, right? Gifted communicator. Theological genius. Able to lead through tragedy. All of these things are good, aren't they? I mean, I wish that I could just package all of those things up and give them to myself because I lack in so many of those. But what does the Bible say? Because ultimately, yes, we, we all may want a, a visionary. We all may want a, a gifted communicator. We may all want someone who woos people to follow after them. And those are not necessarily bad things. But what does the Bible say here? And my theory has been that celebrity culture, celebrity church culture, has invaded all churches to the point where we are all constantly comparing ourselves to someone else. Well, why is that church down the street growing and we're not? Why does that guy have book deals and I don't? Why aren't I being asked to speak at conferences? Are we not being faithful to the word? Why aren't we like them? Years ago, when I was looking for my first pastor, Position, I saw all kinds of job descriptions from churches. Things that weren't found in Scripture. Again, not bad things, but the job postings wanted a guy who was a gifted speaker, a communicator who could wow audiences, a guy who could cast big visions for the church, a guy who was a gifted executive. Ultimately, many churches wanted Superman. And, and, and all I could think about during this process is that most of those churches would choose a man based on things that are often superficial. There are many people who could speak well for a living, 
but don't preach the gospel. There are many great executives who don't base their philosophy on scripture. There are many people who are great leaders, but aren't leading people to Christ. And so all I could think about is what does the Bible say? There's a tendency in all of us to want flash. We, we want something that draws us, something that's that just, there's something about it that's drawing me to this, and we want flash. Can I tell you, spending hours every week reading and studying and praying is not flashy. The list that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 4 is not a flashy list. These are things that are found in faithful pastors that you and I will never hear about. This list won't get anybody book deals or, or, or grow their congregations. This list that Paul gives requires stamina, endurance, and focus on teaching. And also standing firm against what is popular or what people clamor for. What does the word say? Let's just be honest, this list is hard to measure because it takes time. It takes Energy, because we're meeting with people, we're surrounded by people, we, we need to see the heart of the, the pastor. So let's dive into this text. Look at verse 6. In the first few words of verse 6, we see the first thing that a faithful minister must do. He warns people of error. Go back to chapters 2, 3, and the uh, first part of chapter 4. And you're going to see what Paul is referring to, elders, deacons in the life of the church dealing with apostates. And Paul addressed all these things because they're important. Now, Why do you think he brought these things up? We need to dive back into the, the church in Ephesus and who Paul is writing to and imagine that we are part of this, this small but growing congregation. And we're receiving this letter, this, this letter of correction, or Timothy is, and Timothy stands before the church and he reads this letter to the, the congregation. And you read it and you say, wow, these are problems in our church. These are things that needs, needs to be addressed. These are problems that need to be fixed. And the same thing could be said of us today. Every church. Why? Because our aim should always be to grow in holiness. Every day we're growing and growing in our love and knowledge of Christ. Now we get that as individuals. We, we do our daily Bible reading. We pray. We invite lost people into our homes. We share the gospel with people around us. But what about corporately? What about all of us? Do we have a calling to grow in holiness as a church? Absolutely. Which is why I think this passage is so important for us. The church is the bride of Christ, and we are to be his pure bride. And it's in this marriage between Christ and his church that the gospel shines out into a dark world. And for us to not only get to this point, but to stay there, we must have structure that keeps us from error. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was a pastor, a youth pastor at a church, 
we had a, a, a former student, a student who had graduated and um, was a, a young adult, and he met this girl and decided to move in with this girl. And so um, he told me this, and I lovingly, as gently as I could, uh, confronted him and said, this is not okay behavior. This is, uh, this is sinful behavior. And, and, I, and I told him, I said, look, this, this behavior flings the doors wide open for all sorts of other sin and problems to come in, and it also blurs the line between the church and the world. See, we're called to be blameless, and we're called to be set apart, and living together before marriage doesn't do either of those things. I shared with him how to get out of this situation. What was clear to me was that what he was doing was going down the road that won't end well. And to no surprise, they had a child, they split up, and now they hate each other. And that child is living in a relationship where mommy and daddy hate each other. But at the time that I said these words to him, he didn't like what I had to say, and neither did his parents. And in fact, some of the people in the church were offended that I had the nerve to confront someone on their sin. But one of my many responsibilities as a pastor is to protect the church from harm from the outside and from within. Here, sin that is not dealt with in a church will destroy that congregation. It is so tempting to ignore this aspect of my calling. Because I know for a fact that dealing with sin in the open, when it's an open sin, when it's a, a sin that's known, not when it's a secret private sin that you're fighting against, but when it's a known public sin and it's addressed, it turns people off. It causes people to run. But remember, the task of a preacher is to spend the entire week tearing down idols in his heart so that on Sunday morning, yours can be torn down too. The second thing we see is also in verse 6. Paul says that if the pastor will teach the things in the first four and a half chapters, he will be a good servant of Christ. The word servant here is diakonos, the same word for deacon. It's not that the pastor is a deacon, but he should be a servant of Christ. Jesus said that you can't serve two masters. You can't go in two different directions because you're going to grow to hate the one and love the other. And in life and in the Christian faith, we cannot go in two separate opposite directions. And for a pastor to be faithful, he must first be a servant, meaning that he is seen as someone who is defined by living a sacrificial life for the sake of the gospel. That's how we serve God, isn't it? We serve God by obeying him and bringing him glory. And one way we do that is when we serve others. We can't serve God and ourselves at the same time. Next, in verse 6, a pastor must be a student of Scripture. Paul says that a faithful pastor will be trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine. A faithful pastor will devote himself to study the Bible, showing how the gospel is the main point of all Scripture. The entire Bible is about Jesus, and the pastor must proclaim this each and every week. He also must be a constant learner. You've heard the, the statement, leaders are readers, and that's true of a pastor. Jared Wilson, who's spoken at this church before, uh, is a former full-time pastor. Now he is a, a layman at his church. He puts it this way. Church folk, 
Expect and encourage your leaders to tend to their intellectual and spiritual development. We want them to be brimming with the Bible. It is for their and our good that they do. Pastoral ministry is more art than science, and as such, it requires deeply thinking and deeply formed people to carry it out. And deeply thinking and deeply formed people dive deep into the ancient wisdom, push deep into intimate prayer, probe deep into their own souls, wage deep war with their sin. We want them not to become sick with hurry and drowning in the anxiety of productivity and efficiency. That only affects us with the same. We want them to stare out the window and think. That's what we pay them for, and that's what will pay off for us in the long run. He's writing as a layman to church members. Next in verse 7, the pastor must also avoid unholy things. Paul says that he is to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Paul doesn't say that you can't be silly. You can't watch a silly movie. You can't. No, that's not what he's saying. He's focusing on the false doctrine that's being taught by some in the Ephesian church. Things like Christians shouldn't marry or eat certain foods. We saw this last week. Paul is saying that we shouldn't even spend time arguing with these people. These people came up with silly ideas that have just enough truth to draw people away. They're dangerous. They're people who try to stir up problems in the church with faulty doctrine. And Paul says, don't even reason with them. Have nothing to do with them. In the second half of verse 7 through verse 9, we see that a faithful pastor must also discipline himself. The picture Paul paints is one of an athlete. And I know that's what you think every week. You think that the guy who's preaching to you is some super athlete, so I'm going to translate this into athletic terms. Good training is necessary for good productivity on a field or on a court. You train yourself so that when you step on the court and it's game day, you are ready, you're equipped, you know what to do mentally and physically. You can accomplish your goals. Now, translating this into spiritual terms, this is not just for pastors. This is not just for the professionals, the ones who, who do this or who lead or who get paid to do this work. This is not for us. It's for all of us. Listen, Titus 1 gives these qualifications. And these are things that we should all aspire to be. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely... If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dis dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
Besides being able to teach, that's what all of us should be working towards. Every single Christian, this is what we need to aim to be, this standard. Now, we don't meet it, certainly, but every Christian outside of the ability to teach, this should define us. Are you training in godliness? How are you working out your salvation? How are you getting yourself spiritually ready for the battle? I'm convinced that most Christians are not spiritually fit. I I believe that they, for one reason or another, don't see their faith as anything more than just another part of their life. And the truth is, I think for a lot of us, myself included, there are moments when my faith kind of is set aside for a few moments. I make decisions sometimes without thinking through what does it affect, how does this affect my faith? How does this affect my church, those around me? Maybe people see their faith as the most important thing to them, but it doesn't dominate their life. But see, the Christian faith requires a disciplined life. It requires having command over your mind and body. It requires that you sacrifice for the sake of others. It requires that you give until it's painful. It's not a Sunday-only religion. Your Christian faith must touch all aspects of your life, and you get that through being disciplined, and pastors and elders are charged with leading that. And then in verse 10, we see that the pastor must be committed to hard work. Paul writes that we toil and strive. Why? Because we have hope that God says or means what he says. This is uh, the word that Paul uses is labor. It's hard work. It's the kind of work that knocks you out at the end of the day. It's like a marathon runner who doesn't feel like he or she can complete the race and there's a mile left. And, And so they use every ounce of their energy and willpower to make it to the finish line. This purpose trained them to run. And the idea of athletic training is all throughout this passage and through this book. Paul knew that the top athletes are born with extreme athletic ability, but they have to work towards it. We know those people who, who are superstar athletes, and it only gets them so far. Someone can average 25 points a game in high school because they're six foot eight playing against a bunch of five foot nine guys, but when they get to college, they don't do it. Why? Because they didn't work hard enough. They had all the athletic ability in the world. But when the time came with other people with equal or better athletic ability, they couldn't handle it. And Paul says that we must sacrifice. We give everything that we have in preparation for the task so that when the big day arrives, which for the Christian is every day, when that day comes, we're ready and we're prepared. And for the one who preaches the word, isn't that what you expect? That the preacher of God's word stands before you, not as someone who just kind of just opens up the Bible and says, let's talk about this. No, someone who has labored over the text. Someone who has strived and toiled to pull out God's truth and give it to you, to point you to Christ. If you've never done this, if you've never preached, um, it is a hard job. And, and, and here's what I mean. When I get home after church on Sunday, I am completely wiped out. 
exhausted. I feel awful. I feel sick. I don't feel good. By Monday morning, I'm good. But after I finished preaching, and it took me years to figure this out, my entire week and the week of any preacher, it builds and builds and builds to this crescendo at 10.30 on Sunday mornings when I get to deliver the word of God, and then it drops off. Knowing that next week it's the same thing, and it's this climb and climb and drop. Climb and drop. And, and, and I've heard preachers say that it's, it's often like shots of adrenaline running through you, which is not really healthy to have constantly and this many times. The closest thing that I can tell you how I feel on a Sunday afternoon is after I spend two or three hours outside in the summer working on my lawn. Just complete and utter exhaustion. But it's good. This is what ought to be happening. Well, the closest thing that I've found is just sheer physical exhaustion. Now, I know some of you are inwardly thinking, this is ridiculous. All you do is preach on Sunday, right? This is, this is what your job is. This is what you're paid to do. But I think that the preaching of the word requires a passion. And it turns from a spiritual thing into a physical thing. Now, I'll say this. There are two types of people I don't trust. A skinny chef and a preacher who is not exhausted on Sunday afternoons. Why? Because my entire week is reading and studying and thinking about how to apply the Bible to our lives, and it builds up this, and it completely takes away the physical energy that I have. Now, I'm not complaining because I think this is what Paul is telling pastors to do. It's a sign that you're working hard. A preacher should experience this. Why? Not to please people in attendance. Not to gain a following, but to please God who has given us an example of hard work. Listen, in the seven days of creation or six days of creation, what does God do at the end? He rests. Does God really need to rest? No. Could God have snapped his fingers and created everything? Yes. So why did it take him six days? Well, do you not think that he's giving us an example for how we are to live too, we work and then we rest so that we can be ready to work again. We don't work for the weekend, we rest on the weekend so that we can glorify God in our work. And the last thing that we see is found in verse 11. Paul says that a pastor must teach with authority. He writes this, command and teach these things. One of the things that I hope you see about me is that I try to preach with authority, not my own authority, but the authority of Scripture. And, and I try to open up God's Word and, and teach exactly what it says. Now, do I veer? Not intentionally. But we're all sinful. We all have a sinful problem. Uh, and so, so even in the preaching of the Word, there are moments where I likely will say something that's not fully correct. Not on purpose, certainly. But when I open up the Word and I read the Word, and I say, this is what God says, that's preaching with authority. Speaking the words of God that he's given to us. In the Greek here, Paul says that to command, prescribe, or to even give charge over these things. It must be proclaimed with passion and with authority because this is what God says. This is God's word. And the truth of the matter is, though, that any preacher who stands and says this is the word of God and makes the claim that he's speaking truth, it will turn people away. 
You can look at the, the list of the most popular preachers in the United States and you will find that it's full of men and women who have disregarded doctrine and truth for money and more people in the seats. And the cost of all of this is a, a far more than just a little bad doctrine here and there. The cost is the gospel. Churches and denominations who have disregarded the commands for a pastor in Titus and in 1 Timothy inevitably die and are forgotten. Why? Because they have no foundation to stand on. It's crumbled. Because truth is removed, you've got nothing else. There's no way to ground yourself in truth if you don't believe in truth at all. The gospel, that every part of us is tainted with rebellion against a totally good God, and that God sent his son Jesus to suffer and die in our place, it loses its power in our hearts when we get to decide what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. Now what I'm saying is not going to win points with lots of people or critics of Christianity. This honestly makes us look foolish that that we will give ourselves to such an ancient book. They interpret Scripture the way that they want to interpret Scripture if they interpret it at all. But that's, that's fine to be labeled that way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm okay being called a fool. I'm okay being called stupid or ignorant. As long as at the end of that you also say that I'm a child of God. We're here, I'm here to preach for an audience of one, to proclaim the gospel, to point every single person here to Jesus as the solution to all of our problems. That the gospel answers those big questions. The gospel shows us how to be right with the Father, that our our sin has broken that relationship, and the gospel fills that hole and allows us to be made right with God. We're fools to the world. To those who are lost and dying, we are the most pitiful people ever but we know that God uses the weak to shame the strong, doesn't he? And so that's my prayer for us as a church, that we will continue to focus, continue to keep our eyes focused on the gospel message from the pulpit and extending out, because this is our message. This is our lifeblood. This is what causes us to live the way that we do. This is what brings us to our knees at the foot of the cross. Would you pray with me?